Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, 12 Stone across the campuses, and of course, with 12 Stone Home, I am so thankful. I'm honored to be here today for week 12 of our series through the book of Ephesians. It's been an incredible journey so far. We're going to take a little bit of a pause for Christmas, and then we're going to be back uh, to 12 Stone or back to, to Ephesians later in January. One of the themes that we've been seeing in the book of Ephesians, especially lately in the past couple of chapters, and we in chapters four and five, is that one of God's primary goals for our lives is to make us more like Christ. It says it like this in Ephesians chapter five, verse one. It says, therefore, be imitators of God, to, to be like him. And then again, earlier in Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, saying that if you have a saving relationship with God through Jesus, that that God is preparing us, he is refining us, he is shaping us into his workmanship for good works. He's crafting us for a purpose, to make us look more like Christ, Christ Christ-likeness. I want to define that word for us. Christ-likeness is this, to reflect the character of Jesus Christ in who we are, and in everything we do, that we would look like him in in our behavior, in how we love, in how we see other people, how we work with others, how we deal with conflict in our public moments and in our private moments, that all of who we are and in everything we do, we reflect Jesus. And so if Christ-likeness is the goal, how do we get there? The reality is that every area of life can be a workshop for Christ-likeness. There is no moment, there's no environment, there's no set of circumstances, and there's no relationship that God can't use to make you and me look more like Jesus. Specifically today, we're going to be looking at how specific relationships can make us look more like Christ. Now, we're going to believe this, that, that every relationship, every single relationship that you have in life can be used as a workshop for Christ-likeness. These three relationships that we're going to pull straight from the Scripture, from Ephesians 5, the end of Ephesians 5, and the beginning of Ephesians 6, three specific relationships, marriage, parenting and family, and work, kind of jobs and career. Now, I feel like I have to say this off the top. Some of you are thinking not all three of these apply, and, and, and that is completely okay. Some of these may not feel like, like, man, that's not really the stage of life I'm in. That's not the context of my life right now. But you know one of the good things about Scripture is there is not a single wasted word that no matter if this doesn't feel like it immediately applies to you, we can always build a bridge from what God's Word says to our lives today. And so even if you feel like one of these stages doesn't hit you right where you are, slow down and listen to God's word, because I believe they will help you look more like Jesus. And it's important to know how these relationships kind of flow from that big idea of us imitating God to be more like Christ. You see, because when Paul wrote Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, I don't know if you know this, this hopefully is a little bit helpful for you. Paul actually didn't write with the chapter and the verse designations. 
We, we put those in. We put in chapter five, verse one, so that we could go back and, and we could find specific passages of scripture or even frame specific thoughts. So when you read the Bible, it's important to read it in its context and what the author was saying. At the beginning of Ephesians 5, Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. And then he begins to kind of teach about what it would look like to imitate God and to live like Christ. And then he begins to talk about marriage and family and work. It's not a teaching on imitating God and then a separate teaching on imitating marriage and then or imitating or marriage and then a separate teaching on parenting or a separate teaching on work. But it's a flow of thought from Paul saying, hey, imitate God. And then you're going to want to imitate God in your marriage. And you're going to be like Christ in your family. And then be like Christ on the job. And I think that's really important for us today as we remember how these relationships can make us more like Christ. So we want to be really practical and helpful. There is an illustration that we're going to use throughout the entire teaching of a workshop. So when I say workshop, I want you to think about woodworking. Uh, any people in the room kind of pride themselves on being woodworkers or carpenters? Loud and proud, I'm going to put both hands down. That's not me. Um, if you are a woodworker or a carpenter, good for you. I had to find out in marriage that uh, my father-in-law was good at woodworking, and I'm not. So if my wife goes to ask my father-in-law for a bench or something for the kids or something for the house, before she asks me, I have to kind of swallow my manly pride and just go, hey, it's a gift for us now if my father-in-law can do it, and, and, and I can't. But we think this, this image of woodworking is going to be helpful because um, unlike me, there are woodworking artists, there are, there are craftsmen who can make the most beautiful things out of wood. Think about it. There's an unrefined, raw, unused piece of wood. The craftsman chooses it and he goes to work in the workshop and he cuts it and he sands it and he removes pieces of it. He's building it up for a purpose. And then he sands it down to the grain, exposing the beauty. And then he treats it and he oils it, preparing it for a purpose. And we think that that image is going to help us understand Christ's likeness in our lives and how God may be working in relationships. Our creative team got together with one of our pastors, Russell Allen, who has an incredible gift for woodworking. And they put together this beautiful video that we think will help us understand this process. Take a look. The selection of lumber is really what your piece is going to look like. You have to look at it and see what it's going to become. Look at that. So on this project, I had to look at the color of the mahogany, color of the walnut. I actually got two pieces of walnut because they looked so different to me and I thought it would be really cool to see how they ended up being finished. We're making like a Bistro, kind of high, not quite high dime, but sort of like cafe table. I take the amount of lumber that I need and, and get it into, for this project, it was three inch pieces. Put it all together as wide as I want it to be. And on this build, it actually turned out to be about 23 inches wide. It's a square, 23 by 23. Probably half of my time was milling lumber. <laughs> There's so much math and geometry and stuff involved in this. It's literally just like, if, I'm, if I make a mistake, I either lose a finger or I have to start over.
joining is pretty hugely important. The glue joint's actually stronger than the wood itself. Getting it glued well and clamped and making sure that glue is everywhere is the next step. My dad taught me every single craft that I know, uh, honestly, in life. Every sport I played, he, he taught me first. I remember sitting on uh, rooftops with him on the ridge while he's nailing shingles down and hanging gutters. I was in the roofing industry as my first paying job. Everything in woodworking that I knew, I learned from my dad. So once it's flattened through the drum sander, then I'll take it over to the table saw and put it on a cross-cut sled, and then I can perpendicularly cut all of that into the pieces that I then turn 90 degrees, and then I have my final glue up. Once it's all glued together, it's so far from done still. You have to sand, 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 and when you feel like you're done sanding, you sand some more. So out of all the finishes that you could choose, uh, one of the ones I lean towards the most would be conversion varnish sprayed on. And it's kind of, it's a lacquer-based conversion varnish and it's really hard, really, really like makes the whole piece of wood uh, come to life. When I look at a finished table that I built, I'm proud that I was able to put my hands and get them dirty and, and deal with it and start here and it ends here and the, the journey from unfinished rough lumber to a fine finished piece of furniture or a piece of woodworking to be done at the end of the day and look back and say, my hands did that. I'm proud of it. How good is that? Uh, you know, yeah, we can say thank you to those guys. Uh, thanks to our, our creative team, Daniel Loggins, and of course to Russell. I'm sure Russell would love, I'll give him a shameless plug, go find him on Instagram, follow some of his woodworking, because some of you are uh, lusting after this table. Um, and so we could start the bidding at, where should I start? $400? Anyway, um, you, you know, you see this idea, but let, let's explain it, and let's kind of, kind of unpack this a little bit more. Uh, it starts with a craftsman, a craftsman who wants to build something. And then there is wood. It's unrefined, it's raw, it's unused currently. And then the craftsman chooses the wood that he wants because, because he sees what it could be, which is an important thought. Let's, let's not miss that, that the craftsman sees the beauty before anyone else can see the beauty. For me, I don't have the eyes to see it. I'm not a woodworker, but, but I know that there are people like Russell who see the wood and they think, I can make something beautiful out of that. And, and then the crafting process begins, and it's violent at times. There's cutting and there's shaping. And then, he, as he said, there's sanding and there's sanding and there's sanding. There's friction and there's heat. And things are being cut away and removed in order to help create a table that is beautiful and ready for use. And then it is sealed so that it would hold its beauty and it would hold its purpose. And I think this is a wonderful picture of the gospel and what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Because God is a good craftsman. He chooses us, even though we are an unrefined, raw piece of wood. And then he welcomes us, and he chooses us, and then he begins to work on us. Despite our flaws and unrefined nature, he sands and refines our lives, preparing us for a great purpose. Now, this is painful, and this is unpleasant at times. 
But there is beauty inside of each one of us that God sees that he is pulling out. And it is beauty that would not be seen without the painstaking time in the workshop. Which brings us to these relationships, marriage, parenting and family, and work. These are workshops where it's oftentimes painful, but God is doing something in us to bring us to a place of more purpose and usefulness, to look more like Jesus. Now, I do want to say this as a little bit of a disclaimer, because this would not be untrue of the gospel if I didn't say this, is that God loves and values the raw piece of wood before it's the table. Do you you see what I'm saying? Like he sees the value here before it's refined and looks pretty and useful to our eyes. Many of you may think that this is where you are in your spiritual journey and in life, but it's important to realize right here, right now, that God sees you and he values you and he loves you before he's done this in your life. The gospel is not get cleaned up, become the pretty table, and then come into a relationship with God. God meets us right here and says, now I'm going to work on you. But that's ultimately what this idea of Christ-likeness is life, because he doesn't leave us as the raw, unfined piece of wood, but he wants to work inside of us. And today it's these relationships. Now, of course, God can use other things to grow us up. Personal prayer, scripture, church, serving others, discipleship. But we think relationships are unique to how God makes us more like Christ because relationships create friction, don't they? Relationships create friction where we're alongside somebody else and the rough areas of our life and the dark corners of our heart are revealed. It's, it's in relationships where we see our sin, we're convicted of sin, and where if we let God, he will align our heart with his heart. And so let's start with marriage. We're going to read, we're going to look at a few passages in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. It says this, and subject yourselves to one another, pause, it starts with Subject yourselves to each other. Everyone is subjecting themselves to other people. In the fear of Christ, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. We're going to skip to verse 25. And it says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28 begins. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are parts of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and then the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, You as individuals, each husband is to love his own wife in the same as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Uh, I want to talk about marriage for just a moment. Let me talk about mine. I've been married for almost eight years uh, in December. We have three kids. We'll show you a picture a little bit, a little bit later. And my wife is uh, the best. She is my greatest supporter. She's my greatest fan. Uh, she is my best friend. And, and she has added far more value to my life than I've added to her. P- prior to Sarah, uh, my life was, I, I, I was a mess. Um, I'll, I'll explain it. I didn't wash my towel 
uh, until I could take it off the hook and it held its form. That was, that was when I knew, oh, that towel needs to be washed. Or, or when I, I, I needed to eat like something green, I felt like I needed vegetables. That was when I'd go to the store and buy the hot pockets with broccoli in them. Or, or if I really wanted to be healthy, I'd buy the lean pockets with broccoli in them. And then, then there was this one moment where I found out that, that you know, it was pretty normal to wash your sheets pretty often. And so since I didn't have a washer and dryer in the bachelor pad I was living at the time, I took my sheets to my parents' house because that's what a 23-year-old without a washer and dryer does uh, to, to wash them. I didn't bring them back. I ended up sleeping in a sleeping bag for a year prior to getting married. So it's not hard for me to recognize that marriage has made me better. But it's also easy to know, we all know this, that marriage is certainly difficult. That's a constant source of that sanding in our lives, those rough edges being revealed. But it is an incredibly effective tool in the workshop of Christ-likeness. We'll start here with choosing to be second. This is one of the things that God, would, God teaches us is, is that, he chooses, that we have to choose to be second. The scripture says it like this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. I want you to, res, to kind of absorb that as respect. And then the next passage says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We want to absorb that as, as love. Now, there is a, a unique calling for women here to respect and for men to lead with love. But let's go a bit higher and think about some overarching principles that are true of how God has asked us to interact with each other. That there is this, there's this mutual back and forth of, of love and respect. That there is neither of the spouse's Lord authority over it in a domineering way, and neither spouse withholds love from the other. Respect and love are volleyed back and forth in a healthy marriage. But, but, but here's the rub. That requires you and I to be second. But the good news is God gives us a foundation for how we can be second to our spouse with how we view Christ. The first verse that we read together is so important. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What it's saying above the teaching of marriage. Remember, there's this constant flow of thought that Paul had that we segment out that he did not segment out. He's saying the first thing you have to do to have a healthy marriage is you both have to bow to Christ. Jesus is first. And if Jesus can be first in your life individually, you can put your, your spouse first because he's first, not you. Your spouse isn't even first. It's him. And when your spouse is, and when Jesus is first, you can be second to your spouse. We choose to be second. See, marriage makes us more like Christ because we are daily presented with the opportunity to take a back seat to our spouse. See, Christ died for us. And so we choose to die to ourselves daily to be a reflection of Jesus to our spouse. And we can get really practical with this as well. It's not just deep as we think about our relationship to Christ and our relationship to our spouse, but in our preferences. We can set our preferences aside for the preferences of our spouse, in our schedules, and how we spend time, and what's for dinner, and what's on the TV, and chores around the house, and the honey-do honey list. Think about it this way. You should always continue to be a student of your spouse, where you're learning about his or her needs. You're, you're seeing what they like and what they don't like, and you're, you're absorbing that, and you're learning things about your spouse so that you can better meet their needs and preferences. I want to introduce you to this idea of a love bank. It's kind of cheesy, but bear with me. Uh, it comes from a book that my wife and I read in premarital. It's called His Needs, Her Needs. And the concept goes something like this. 
every one of us has a love bank. And every interaction with our spouse is either a deposit or a withdrawal. There are no neutral transactions. So every time you interact with your spouse, you're either depositing in or withdrawing out. So every, every conversation or, or lack thereof, every text or, or, or lack thereof, every meal, every moment in the home, every time you're connecting during the course of a busy day, every kind of awkward interchange at the bathroom early in the morning, every moment is either a deposit or a withdrawal. And, and the good news is, uh, you're supposed to withdraw. So don't hear me say that all you do is deposit. You're supposed to withdraw. God has designed marriage so that you can pull love and affirmation and attention and service and gifts from someone else when you need to be filled up. The problem is when couples both get on withdrawal mode constantly, and they're both drawing and pulling, withdrawing and pulling, and both forget to slow down and to deposit Marriages are healthy when the spouses intentionally choose to deposit into the other. It could be kind words, attention in a conversation. You could pick up uh, your wife's, man, pick up your wife's special little drink from Starbucks on, on the way home. Date nights, telling your kids to go to the other room because mommy and daddy are busy. All of that, all of that could be deposits for you to fill your spouse's love bank. And here's the cool thing about the love bank is it is uh, most often filled by your intentional, specific, small moments. Yes, the big, lavish, grandiose, romantic gestures are great, and you should do those. But when we slow down and choose to do something kind and intentional for our spouse, we deposit into the love bank, and then love begins to fill inside the relationship. I want to take just a moment and speak to the husbands in the room. I'm going to take a little bit of a liberty there because I am a husband. Um, because I feel like I need to say this. Men, according to scripture, your wife is your greatest spiritual priority. More than your job, more than your hobbies, more than even your kids, more than even your role in the church. Your wife is your greatest spiritual priority. I struggle with this. I'm sure many of you struggle with this. But imagine what would happen in 12 Stone Church if the men rose up and we lifted our wives to the highest spiritual priority. Families would flourish. The next uh, kind of how God begins to work with us in the workshop of marriage to make us more like Christ is daily grace. Daily grace. Uh, we fail your spouse will fail, and then we both wake up, we fail again, rinse, repeat. That is kind of the, how marriage works. That's the human experience. Sin has broken relationships. Sin has broken us, which is why this is so true of marriage. You are never more like Christ than when you are choosing to love your spouse despite their failures. Well, they don't have to perform for you. Your spouse doesn't have to make sure that they, they have to, you know, they cross all the T's and dot all the I's and aren't walking on eggshells, but they feel fully known and fully loved inside of your relationship. And here's a really healthy place to start. Your failures. Not your spouse's failures, your failures. Now, of course, it's easy to go, well, if, if they would only fix this, I, if, if, if God would only help him or her with that, isn't it easy to get to that place of blame? But have you ever seen a kind of a disagreement or a conflict or distance in marriage settled when somebody starts with blaming? So where do we start? What if God's aim in your marriage was to deal with your failures first? 
And the friction, we begin to think about the friction in our relationship differently because God is first sanding away and cutting away your selfishness and your defensiveness and your argumentative spirit and your hangups and your annoying traits of which my wife has zero annoying traits to make sure that she, she, she hears that from, from me. I, I, I want to teach it this way. Marriage is a covenantal relationship, not a contractual one. There's a difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract is something that is a part of an agreement that you go into some, you go into this agreement with somebody else, or perhaps you're in an agreement with a, it's a lease or an organization. And contracts are writ, written in such a way that if the other person doesn't keep up their end of the deal, you're protected. So, hey, you don't do what you've been expected to do as according to the contract. I have a way out. I'm protected. A covenant is much different. A covenant like the one inside of marriage says that even if you don't keep up your end of the deal, I'm still in. And I know that's difficult, and I know that comes with pain, and I know there are nuances, but we can say, even if you fail, I'm still in because we are in a covenant that represents Christ. Why? Because Jesus has done that to us. Jesus has kept up both ends of the deal for, for you and I. Uh, he pursued us in love. He created us, pursued us in love, and then also died in the place for our sins. See, he carried both sides of the equation. And so we mirror that in our marriage because our marriage is meant to reflect more of Christ. Uh, scripture says it right there in the passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. It says the mystery. Paul's saying the mystery. What he's, what he's wanting us to understand is why marriage? Why did God create marriage? He's going to tell you. The mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church, that there is something like the kingdom of God in a healthy marriage, that people, when they would see the depth of your love for each other in your marriage, that they would better see Jesus. No pressure, no pressure. But I wonder if people were to look in on your relationship, would they better know the love of God? See, happy marriages are not about perfect romance, but closeness to Jesus. Marriages are workshops where we get to walk with Jesus and be like Jesus. And marriages don't fall apart when romance dwindles. Marriages fall apart when they stop reflecting the heart of God. The next workshop is parenting. Parenting. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see it in the beginning of the chapter. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for that is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may turn out well for you. Some of the parents are already like, amen. I'm, 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 it gets better. And that you may live long on the earth. Essentially saying, hey, the pastor said today at church that if you don't listen to me, you might not make it. Um, <laughs> fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. What can family teach us about Christ's likeness? First, I need to say this. Parenting is a gift. Kids are a gift. You heard Russell when he was talking about building the table and he's sealing the table. He said that the seal actually becomes stronger than the wood itself. So I think about a family growing together and you have uh, different pieces of wood that choose to come together and kids are added to the equation and eventually the seal, the bond of that family is greater than the wood itself. So kids are a gift outside of my relationship with Jesus and my relationship with my wife, being a daddy is the sweetest thing in life. And I know many of you feel the same. So whether you're parenting babies up through adults, because parenting never changes, it just kind of changes methods. 
Um, this is a great responsibility. It seems like a good point to share with you a picture of my family. Uh, this is us out in a field because that's where you take pictures now. Um, get on Instagram. You'll see. Um, this is my oldest. He's six. I have an almost five-year-old. And then we have our surprise one-year-old who has rounded us out with three boys. So, so pray for my wife. See, family is, is such an important place where God begins to shape us. So first, I want to I talk to, to kids and students, the kids and students in the room. Um, this, this passage of scripture, Paul quotes one of the Ten Commandments. He actually quotes the middle commandment. And what Paul does when he, when he quotes that commandment is, is he's bringing us back to kind of a truth from the Old Testament that applies to us today. In the middle of the Ten Commandments, there's, there's, like I said, there's Ten Commandments. The first four kind of, kind of deal primarily with your relationship to God. Go read them. The first four are primarily with your relationship with God. And the, the final six deal primarily with your relationship with others. And in the fifth commandment, right in the middle, is honor your father and mother. So, so here's a question. Is the commandment about honoring your father and mother primarily about your relationship to God or your relationship with others? The answer is, is yes. <laughs> your relationship and how you honor your parents is as much about how you view and respond to God as it is how you view and respond to your parents. So students, I'm going to say it heavy, but, but, but I pray that you hear the heart. Learning how to respect and honor your parents is like learning how to respect and honor God. Now, your parents aren't God, right? They're going to mess up. They're going to fail. But your desire to please God is seen in how you respond and honor your parents. And this will be difficult at times, but you are becoming more like Christ when you learn how to honor mom and dad. So I pray that you would begin to grow in Christ's likeness in that way. But parents, how is God using parenting to make you more like Christ? The first is pretty simple. Patience. Patience. You know this. The scripture says it like this. Do not provoke your children to anger. Now, we know that, uh, that we have this opportunity to demonstrate patience every single day. There are moments after moments when there are occurrences of annoyance and frustration from things being done that you ask not to be done and things not being done that you ask to be done. Amen, moms and dads? And then there are moments of legitimate worry and heartbreak that come with being a parent. But God is using these moments to form your heart into his heart, mom and dad. Because he is a good, good father. And we are his children, and he loves us. And he is certainly patient with our mistakes, isn't he? Romans 2.4 says it like this. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? This is towards you, from God to you, his patience, and not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to Repentance. So every time you're given the opportunity to show patience to your child, you are representing the heart of God. I think Paul knew that when he, because the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians. And so when he's challenging parents to, to be patient, most certainly he has this picture of how God has treated us. So when we want to respond in anger to our kids, or we want to meet them at the level of their intensity emotionally and the intensity of their immaturity, we have to pull back and say, would God respond to me in this way? And let me give you a little bit of freedom for a moment. That you are called to focus first on the heart of your children and not their behavior. Now, I'm not saying let them live in destructive behavior or just blatant disrespect. And of course, we have to discipline our kids. But we begin to focus on the heart of who they are becoming. We are given the gift of patience. 
We can deal with our kids' missteps and mistakes and annoyances and hangups and frustrations that we have with them because we are looking deeper than their behavior and we're looking at their heart. And then we find that patience rises when we're okay with slowing down and shepherding and pastoring and forming and parenting their identity. And God is making us more like Christ in the heart of God in the process. The next thing God does in parenting is he gives us the opportunity to be shaped by responsibility. Responsibility. Scripture says it like this. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Uh, I, you know, responsibility. I, if you didn't have this moment when you first had your kid, then, then you're a robot. We had that moment of our first getting like snapped into the car seat at the hospital. Like, I, first of all, I don't know if I've ever changed a diaper. How does the car seat work? Uh, do I have to take this kid home? We have to feed it. We have to take care of it. Luckily, my wife was present and she made sure our children lived. But you remember that moment when you're like, I'm taking a human home with me. And it's my responsibility to not only make sure the child lives, but also flourishes in life. So what, what, what was I feeling? I was feeling responsibility. So we have a great responsibility to represent God in the life of our kids. As my kids see me, they had better see God. It's our responsibility as parents to shape our heart, to shape the hearts of our children towards God, that they would be on a path towards a whole and full flourishing life in him. And I have to often remind myself that we aren't just parenting our kids to make them comfortable and happy today, but we are raising adults. We have a vision and a hope for the men that my sons will be one day. The goal of my first grader is not that he would have an incredible first grade year. I hope that he has a great time in first grade. The hope for my son is that every single day would push him towards his calling and his identity as an adult. And I am parenting the man I hope him to be, not the kid he is today. Parents, hear that. You are parenting the adult you hope your kid will be, not the kid they are today. So every parenting moment, every need for discipline, every intentional conversation about God, church, and the Bible, the priorities that you set in your home, all of this is forming responsibility inside of you to produce strong and healthy disciples of Jesus. Now, I feel like I have to say this. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rushing my, my kids into adulthood either. I get to let them be kids. I'm not swapping out Paw Patrol for C-SPAN or Legos for budgets. And they can eat as many Eggo waffles as they want because daddy likes Eggo waffles too. Like we, we're good. They're going to be kids. But we sense this responsibility in our spirit that we are not just with them today, but we are helping form them to who they can be as adults. And when I sense this responsibility, it works stuff out in my life. This responsibility begins to cut and trim things inside of me that doesn't line up with Christ likeness. And I am called deeper into Christ likeness as I look my kids in the eyes and I call them to do the same. Do you feel that? How responsibility, how family and parenting and patience helps form us into the image of Christ. And then finally, we have work, work, bond servants, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. Masters, do the same thing to them and stop while you're, thre stop your threatening, knowing that who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So let's dig into this. How do we read a passage like this for our sake today? 
When you read it, I want you to think about employee and employer relationship. This is a passage of scripture that deals with the Christian philosophy of work. Now, I need to say this because your Bible may actually use the word slave. We have to bring this scripture into our context. And we also have to understand what Paul was teaching at the time. Because the Bible, Christianity, the heart of God is unflinchingly opposed to racism and slavery. So when we read this, we have to know that what Paul was referring to, and the reason some uh, scripture uses bondservant is because this was more of an indentured servitude. Where somebody would sell themselves voluntarily into a, a servant relationship with somebody else, either to pay off a debt or to cover the debt of a family member or even to pay back for a crime. So this was voluntary. It was not race centered. It was not ethnically centered because we believe that all of anything remotely like that is anti to the heart of God. This passage of scripture is a Christian philosophy of work. So what does God expect from us on the job? Let's admit it quickly that often uh, we, we know that relationships at work can add friction to our lives with your boss, with the people you work with, the job itself. Our job is full of Christ-like workshop moments. So how is God using your job to make you more like Christ? The first is hard work. It's simple, hard work. There it is, hard work. The passage of scripture we'll pull from is this, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. Rendering service with goodwill. We'll say it like this, hard work with character. That you would be learning how to work hard, to put in sweat equity, not literally sweating, but, but effort, you might literally sweat, as to the Lord. And so we don't offer up in work our leftovers or secondary efforts or self-serving agendas because we know that we are working with character for God. There's something deeply refining that happens in our lives when we begin to see our work as worship. That how we work, our attitude at work, how we arrive to work, how we leave work, our motives at work, our relationships at work are all in the path of worshiping or not worshiping Jesus. The alternative of laziness and cutting corners and arriving late and leaving early and half social media, half working and gossiping with that coworker or cheating to get ahead. That is perhaps where, where the saw is needed. And God will find those character things inside of you at work. And he says, no, you're going to work with character and he's going to cut off of the things that don't represent him and make us look more like Christ as we live around these people that, that we're, around, we're around these people so much inside of the workplace. And I know that people can sometimes be difficult and it can be painful, especially if a boss is wicked or somebody around you is difficult to, and they're gossiping and things like that. But we have to remember that uh, we can submit to them because we all serve God first. So even if you're working in obscurity or you get passed up for the promotion, you feel like everything you do is getting unnoticed. You are working for God first. You're working for him and not for them. And so whether you are a teacher, a lawyer, a babysitter, or a barista, a waitress, a construction worker, a business owner, or you're rising in corporate America or raising kids at home or any other role, work hard with character because you work for him and not for them. And then finally, in the workshop of work is honor. Honor. We're rendering service to the Lord. Remember, as to the Lord and not to man. Say this with me. It's not about me. One, two, three. It's not about me. And this verse essentially majors on honor, honoring the people that work for you. If you're a boss, honoring your coworkers, honoring your boss. If you have a boss, because you report to somebody, you work along somebody, 
You may be the boss of somebody, but workplace hierarchy is different than the hierarchy of the kingdom of God because God's economy is different. Workers, you're not better than your boss. Boss, you're not better than your workers. Coworkers, you're not better than each other. Our call is to honor everyone in the workplace. And there's such a life-giving definition for honor. I heard from one of our pastors recently, Blake Godby, said honor like this. Honor is celebrating who someone is without stumbling over who they aren't. Isn't that life-giving? Honor is celebrating who someone is without stumbling over who they aren't. What a better way to live. But there's tension because we have lost honor in our culture. There seems to be a higher value on airing grievances and opinions and stirring dissension and blasting someone on social media and attacking other people rather than honoring. It's easy to major on weaknesses. It's easy to slip into gossiping and grumbling and complaining and whining and outbursts of anger because we will raise our personal sensitivity and offenses over the call to honor the people around us. Christians, we should be the most difficult people in the world to offend because our identity is not in work or the approval of others. Our identity is in Christ. If you find, if you find that you are easily offended, it may be a sign that you need to do some work in the workshop with honor. I'm going to read this so I don't miss it. Our identity is not in our paycheck, our reputation, or our political party. It's not in the logo of the company we work for, or our status, or the position on the org chart. It's not even how other people talk about us. Our identity is first in Christ. Once we settle this, we can handle disagreements. We can handle tough decision-making. We can handle difficult people and still show honor. And what a better way to live. What a better way to live. And here, here's the side effect of that. If you begin to show honor in the workplace and you begin to bear the marks of Christ and how you celebrate someone before you see their weaknesses, eventually they're going to see Jesus in you in such a way that someone that does not know Christ may choose Jesus for themselves, which is a wonderful way to live anyway, right? So Christ is using, he's using these relationships. He's using marriage parenting and, and, and work to make you more like him. He's sanding things off and things are changing. And you may feel like in one of those environments, you are raw and unrefined. And this is difficult and it's, and it's painful in your marriage. It's painful in your family. It's painful at work. Uh, our encouragement today is this. Don't walk out of the workshop. Don't walk out of the workshop. Don't just endure the relationships. Don't just kind of trudge through it, but, but stay in it because God is working something out in you. He is bringing beauty to the surface. He's bringing out the wood grain beauty that's always been there, and he's going to seal you and use you for a purpose. In marriage, he's cutting things out of you that don't need to be there for a healthy marriage. In parenting, he's, he's, he's removing things and sanding off the rough edges. In work, he is preparing you for a beautiful purpose if we would just let him. He chooses you. He welcomes you into this crafting process. And I pray that you would stay in the workshop of these relationships, grow in Christ-likeness, and that you would flourish in these relationships along the way. Can I pray that over you? So Father, we know that you have given us marriage and parenting for a purpose. You've given us work to look more like you. God, would you shape us into the image of your son, Jesus, in all of those relationships. Sand us, God. We welcome that. Maybe that's your first prayer today. You welcome God's sanding in your life. You welcome his cutting. You welcome his work because you know that on the other side of the painstaking time in the workshop is more of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Hey.
Thank you again for spending time with us today. A special thanks to those of you who generously give through 12 Stone. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about 12 Stone, make sure you follow us on social at 12 Stone Church and check out a location or a watch party near you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you could subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the share button, or even take a screenshot and throw it in your social stories. And make sure to tag 12 Stone Church. Let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again, and we'll catch you on the next one.